Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. When last year, the writer and activist Bernadine Evaristo won the Booker Prize for Fiction, becoming, in fact, the first black British person to do so, we at the TLS were not surprised. Bernadine has written for us for some years now, and Girl, Woman, Other, the novel for which the prize was awarded, was only the latest in a run of rich and capacious novels full of life and questions and challenges. In the past 12 months, things have snowballed rather, and earlier this week, Bernadine Everestu was named Author of the Year at the British Book Awards, with Girl, Woman, Other being chosen as Fiction Book of the Year. So, if this is beginning to sound a little like an I told you so... Perhaps that's because it is. If you haven't already read Bernadine Evaristo's work, do. There are eight novels to be getting on with. And then there's her criticism, some of which you'll find on the TLS website right now. But before you go anywhere, why not listen to this interview, recorded with our fiction editor, Toby Lishtig, just after Bernadine Evaristo won the Booker Prize last year. Hello and welcome to a bonus episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Toby Lishtig, the fiction editor of the TLS, uh, and I'm joined today by Bernadine Evaristo, who earlier this week won the Booker Prize in conjunction with Margaret Atwood for her novel Girl, Woman, Other, a polyphonic, multi-generational collage of the lives of 12 characters, mostly black women. We've already discussed the controversy over the awarding of a double booker on this week's podcast, and I'm delighted not to have to revisit that now, and instead to welcome Bernadine uh, to the studio and to talk about what really matters, her book. So welcome, Bernadine. Hi, it's great to be here. Um, I guess it's been quite a frenetic couple of days for you. Understatement. (laughs) As soon as the announcement was made, uh, we were whisked off to a press conference and then we had lots of press interviews and then it continued early the next morning and um, I didn't get home till about 10 o'clock last night and up again this morning, but it's all good. Hooray. Yes. (laughs) Um, When I was at the ceremony on Monday night, Anna Burns, who was last year's winner Mm. for Milkman, gave quite a moving speech, I thought, Mm. about what winning the Booker had done for her, for her career, for her finances, obviously the sort of the literary recognition and the frenetic last year she's had. Um, apart from the money, obviously, what does it mean for you and what will it do for you, do you think? What it means for me is it's given my work incredible exposure um, internationally because this prize is so important um, and that's what I've always wanted for my writing and yet I've, I've really never reached large audiences at all. Um, so I've written eight books, but 
most people haven't read them. <laughs> and they, they come across them and then they say, oh, I really like your work. Have you, you know, what else have you written? And you know, then they're curious about what else I've written and they gen up on me and so on. So I feel that a lot of the work of making um, my books known has now been done in terms of this prize and I'll feel the ripple effect of this for quite a while. Um, as I said in my acceptance speech, I am the first black woman to win it and the first black British person to win it. So I think it's historic and significant that this prize has gone to somebody like me writing the kind of book that I have, which is all about black British women. So I think the impact on black women, actually, and perhaps, you know, women of colour and marginalised people and black people in this country and, and perhaps in other places will be huge. I've already experienced a lot of people being very emotional about me winning this prize. People I know, people in my writing community, people on social media saying they were in tears, they were bawling, they couldn't believe it because I'm a black woman. And I think also because I am 60 um, and I've been in this game for nearly 40 years, it's a sign for me that you can just plough ahead decade after decade and then come away with a bit of a gift, you know? Is, is it, a, in a way, is it a chance for you to revisit your, your backlist a bit? Because I guess they're going to be translations, not just of this book, but some of your previous books that haven't previously been translated. And maybe it's a chance to, to, to think about some of the novels you've written earlier in your career that perhaps you I haven't thought about yeah, for a while. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, the translation rights are coming through, coming in thick and fast, which is what I've always wanted. And I can't quite believe it. Every day they're sort of like Lithuania, you know, Korea, Georgia. This is just incredible. But I'm, I'm kind of very, I'm already very familiar with my backlist. I've, I've always been doing lots of readings. So I'm, I'm very much out there as a writer. And I have been reading about my books, reading from my books, sorry, for a long time. So I'm not distanced from my backlist, I would say. Right, right. Yeah. Um, to the novel itself, um, yes. Girl, Woman, Other. So you've got these 12 characters spanning the generations. Um, I guess it's, this is a novel less about black British experience than the multifariousness of black British experience, mm. which is the whole point. Is that something you think has been missing from British fiction or is it, is it more that the recognition of that has been missing? You know, are there lots of other of these voices out there that aren't being recognised or, or do you I, feel I, like it's I not been think, done enough? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, that it has been missing from British fiction and we know that and have felt that. But it doesn't. It doesn't seem to have got out there. Do you know what I mean? And like the the publishing industry for a long time thought it was all right to just publish less than a handful of Black British women writers, of which I I have been one, and ignore the fact that I don't even know what the statistics are, but ignore the fact that we were writing from very limited perspectives because there were so few of us. I'm hoping that this will change now. You know, because if you win a book, if you win the Booker Prize, it kind of sets a precedent, and hopefully publishers will be inspired to sort of diversify their lists a bit more. I was talking to Candice Carty-Williams, who's published her first novel, Queenie, this year, and we were trying to work out how many books by and about black British women have been published this year. And we came to the conclusion there were two. We may be right. wrong, we may be wrong, but we couldn't think of anybody else. And this doesn't seem like a particularly peculiar year either, presumably. This is a good year. Right? <laughs> right. I'm talking about adult books. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There are a couple of books coming out by black British women writers, but they're not necessarily about black British women. So there you go. There are the statistics. How many novels are published every year? Do you know? I don't know, but it's definitely thousands. Thousands. So, yeah. so we think there's two of us. Okay. I've, so, written 12. I've written 12. <laughs> You've written 12. So hopefully this is the, this is the floodgates opening. Maybe. Um, there's a, talking of what you're saying, there's, there's a, a line in your, your book when one of the characters says, black people have to 
black people feel the burden of representation, whereas white people only have to represent themselves. And I just wondered if you could talk a little bit about that burden for yourself and to what extent it's been a burden and to what extent it has possibly freed you to write as well. Yeah, I mean, that's that's one of the characters' point of view. It's yeah. not my point nope. of view, actually. Although <laughs> it is the point of view of, of, of many writers. They don't want to have to represent whatever sort of demographic they're supposed to represent. But I don't see it as a burden. You know, I've had um, a differing relationship or, you know, varied relationships to the idea of being a black writer over the course of my career. And there was a stage when I was just fed up of it and I thought, you know, don't call me a black writer, I'm just a writer. But actually, I'm at a stage now where I just own it. That is the perspective from which I write. That doesn't mean to say I'm only writing black British characters, because I don't. You know, I've, I've written various stories. But I'm very interested in the African diaspora um, from a British perspective. And that's what I do. That's what I write. I remember Toni Morrison years ago saying, I, that's, I'm an African-American writer. That's what I am. I write African-American stories. I'm not ashamed of it. That's how I feel. And there is no limitation to that. Well, I think, you, I think so, so earlier stories, you've, you've set a story in, in ancient Rome, you've set a yes. story you know, sort of reversing the, 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 sort of the binaries of, the, of, of slavery, but it's still about black British experience. Yes, and, and the, the story um, set in Roman London, in fact, is about a black British girl growing up in Roman London. So, so there is no limitation to that because take, you know, some, one of our most celebrated writers, Ian McEwan, he might not say when he's talking to you in a podcast, you know, I only write about white men. Because he doesn't have to, because he doesn't. There, there's less of that burden. And he, there, but he so. doesn't only do that. That's yes. a bit unfair. But I mean, he but writes from that perspective, absolutely. and that's what he writes, and everybody just accepts that. Yeah. Whereas I'm making a point of telling you this is what I'm doing, and people are noticing that this is what I'm doing. So I'm kind of um, there's an activism about it as well, you know. And it's it's a good thing, and it's a positive thing, and it's a it's as limitless as anybody else, anybody writing about any demographic. And of course, it's not a sole demographic. One of your points that so we talked about mm. multifariousness, but it's, there's, there are subgroups in it. So we've got you've got your character um, Amma, who uh, spent some of her life in a lesbian collective in the 1980s, the Republic of Freedomia, I think is that. What yeah, called? squat. Yeah. Squat. Yeah. Um, then you've got uh, the character uh, Bumi, who insists that her, her daughter Carol marries a Nigerian man, and Carol doesn't want to do this. You've got Carol herself, who gets into Oxford and then has to deal with the ludicrous cliqueiness of that of that of that place and there's a very funny line when she's sort of trying to get to grips with the, the mores and she talks about how omelettes are not classy but spanish omelettes are classy <laughs> even though they seem to be made from the same things i was interested in the extent to which this is actually a book about class as well mm. and and the sort of different subgroups within classes in this country which is still it is sort of riven by class it is it, it's a book about many things i think because about the intersection of race and class and gender um, and sexuality um, and I think I, I didn't intend to to sort of sew class through it but it became inevitable in a sense because I was interested in looking at where people start and where they end up and the journey they take to get there so I do that with all of the women you kind of know where they are now in the 21st century the book spans 100 years but then you also find out how they got to to their position now whether they're 19 or 93 because the oldest character is 93 and there's every generation in between and when you start to look at people's journey through life and when you're looking at how we succeed in this society, which is something else that I, I was looking at, I think class is, is factored into that. So there are characters who are born in one class, which is really basically working class or even immigrant class, who then progress to, to middle class you know, from sort of unskilled labour to being professional in whether it's the corporate world or banking or theatre or working in education, 
we know that we're a class a class obsessed society and it's something that we tend not to describe in terms of our black populations you know people often talk about the working class and they don't somehow think they're including people of color yeah it, it often most of whom are working class the, actually often the word white is attached to working class you're talking yes. about the white working class yes but it's, it's absolutely true and it's are... ridiculous and also i come from a working class family working class can be variously described but my mother was a school teacher but my father was an immigrant nigerian he was a welder um i'm now a booker winning writer <laughs> and a <laughs> professor you know and you know, listen to how i speak you know i'm you would not think necessarily that i come from the class that i come from but i do and that's been a very long journey and at some point in my life i well i know when it was when i was 14 i changed the way i spoke in order to kind of assimilate better mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for mother's day than whole foods market they're your destination for unbeatable savings from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts start by saving 33 with prime on all body care and candles then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just 9.99 each with prime round out mom's menu with festive rosé irresistible berry chantilly cake and more special treats come celebrate mother's day at whole foods market When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At bluenile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to bluenile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at bluenile.com for $50 off your purchase. bluenile.com code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. And, and to what extent is your book then a celebration of that fluidity and to what extent is your character's hidebound? Because there's one, there's one moment when it's Amma's mother says of her father, he's this essentially well-meaning, I would say, but quite patriarchal character, um, a, a Ghanaian man, and she says he's of his time and culture. So there's a sense that he is somehow stuck in, 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 in what made him. To what extent is that true of the characters in your book more generally and, and the Britain that you see and describe? That they're, they're stuck, they're sort of um, unable to move beyond their situation. Yeah. I think all my characters move beyond their situation. Yeah. You know, and that's not necessarily what I was thinking of when I wrote it. But they're all, no, as I said, they're all on some kind of journey to improve their lives. And I, I, I like to put a positive spin on things. I'm not a bleak writer. I want my work to have, to, as you say, to, to celebrate, not to dismiss the struggles, but also to sort of balance that with celebration and for there to be hope embedded in it. And, and it's um, a very hopeful ending. We won't give it away, obviously. It's a very hopeful ending. Yeah. I was not going to write a, a novel about 12 primarily black British women and end it on a bleak note because we know that our society at the moment feels quite bleak anyway. I wanted my women, even though when sometimes they are victims of circumstance, I want them to rise above that and to be triumphant in whatever little way is um, relevant to the situation that they're in. So sometimes difficult things happen to them. 
sometimes bad things happen to them. Sometimes they do spend years struggling, but they are not defeated by that. And that's kind of, you know, I kind of want to inspire with that. So, so these women are, they're works of the imagination. They come out of my imagination, but they're also the product in, in a way of, yeah, of everybody I've ever met, everybody I've spoken to, all the black women I've known, all the generations of black women that I've known. And I'm kind of like, the, I've kind of absorbed who they are. And through osmosis, I'm kind of like then recreating them in the novel. And I want people to see themselves in it. And that's one of the things that black women readers say. This is a book where we see ourselves. Because there are so many of them as well. And it's not that they necessarily fully identify with any single character. But because it's written from a black woman's perspective in this country, there are so many things that people go, "Uh uh-huh, uh-huh, oh, yeah, yeah, I've been there, blah, blah, blah. So to me, it's kind of, it's showing us the possibilities of who we can be in a positive way. And actually, I must say, reading it as a white man, I found it... Firstly, incredibly refreshing to to be given that multiplicity of perspectives from something that's very different from my own experience. But also, you seem to completely nail the universal because there's nothing that seems, un, un, you know, difficult to understand or, or inaccessible or anything like that. And I guess that's sort of the gold standard of this sort of writing that you're giving voice to a, a particular of experience, but allowing readers to any reader to engage. Yeah, with that's it. that's interesting. That sort of white middle class men are liking my book. Yeah. you know, because because. Um, <laughs> I mean, I wasn't thinking, I wasn't thinking of a readership, to be honest, but I was thinking, I do want black women to know that this is a book about them. But then when you put a book, a book out there in the world, you don't know who's going to read it. But if it does have a universality to it, and that only comes through the specifics, right, of character and writing with integrity and, and, and making sure your characters are interesting and rich and flawed and all those things, then that's fantastic. And voice. I think, you know, voice, voice. is really important for this. So, in fact, for, for listeners who haven't read the novel and don't really know sort of how it's structured or whatever, you've got these 12 characters. They're essentially each, well, they're each recorded a chapter, aren't they? And it's loosely structured around this theatrical performance. So some are involved in it in some way, some attend an after party, some sort of read about it. The way you've written it, I mean, it's essentially a series of single sentence paragraphs without full stops, which seems to me a really brilliant way of dealing with the kind of the close third person. So you rove in and out of, of these characters' thoughts with this voice that constantly changes and the diction changes and the, the lexicon changes. And I, I thought that was done really, really brilliantly. And I just wondered sort of how did that evolve and what other writers did you draw yeah. inspiration on for that kind of technique? Yeah, I wouldn't say it was a, their single sentence paragraphs because I think that might put people off. Oh, sorry, yes. Because <laughs> <laughs> the shape on the pages are sort of, well, I call it, this may sound a bit pretentious, but I call it a pro-poetic patterning. Yep. That, in that it's not poetry, but it's sort of a bit, it's a bit like, poetry but the writing flows on the page and there aren't that many full stops but there are lots of commas and the spaces in between the text gives you breathing space so that form I actually used it in my previous my um, yeah my previous book Mr Loverman where I had the main character Barrington who's a gay 74 year old man telling his story in the first person and I needed to find a device to tell for his his wife to tell her story that would not compete with his voice and they're both from Antigua and they're both the same age so I found a sort of form which was the form that I guess I use in Girl Woman Other which is the same 
the same kind of thing on the page, kind of quite poetic. I also told her voice in the second person also to, to distinguish between his. But with this book, I found it was a very free-flowing writing experience. And I hope it's a free-flowing reading experience. It is. Yes. It really is. So once you're in it, you're into the rhythm of it, the rhythm of the language. And don't forget, I did begin as a poet. So I'm always paying very special attention to the, the way in which I'm using language. Once you're in it, you're inside the women's heads, even though, and you're hearing their voices, even though it's in the third person, as you say. And then I'm going back into the past. I'm coming up to the future. You're, there's interiority, there's exteriority, and you're kind of floating along their subconscious. And then you float into another character's head and the same things happen, but they're very different. And that's kind of has an, a cumulative effect until in the end of it, you've just been inside the heads of these 12 women and hopefully had something of an experience. You have. <laughs> and aren't too traumatised by us. <laughs> De- definitely not traumatised. And so, yeah, you, you talk about having worked as a poet. I mean, you've written a verse novel before. You've yes. also worked in the theatre. And there's a kind of, yes. you've got this construct of, of this theatre performance and the, the polyphonous nature of, I guess, this book. There's a kind of theatricality to that and yes. form and theme and style seem to kind of meld quite well. Do you still work in theatre no I don't but I'd like to I'd like to go back to writing for theatre because I miss I miss that world and I I'd love to have work on the stage again I left writing for theatre really properly about 30 something years ago um but yeah I like to inhabit my characters so when I'm writing them I feel that I'm inside them and that's what we do as actors or what I used to do as actors do you know what I mean you become your characters as much as you can you know you try to experience their thoughts and their feelings and their lives and I think that comes through with my work because there is a performative element to my work you know people say it's very lively very vibrant oh, I can completely see this being staged in some way or be so, so I mean I, I presume there's an audiobook on the way if there isn't one already there is one at the there moment. is but I mean I, I must go and listen to that because I, I, yes. I imagine it would just it would work extremely well in that yes. format so the characters do come alive and I think that is to do with my theatrical background you know um, not all writers are particularly interested in writing the kinds of kind of very lively leap off the page characters that I do. They may be more plot driven or the voice may be quieter, whereas I'm quite a bold, daring, kind of risk taking writer in terms of the way in which I create characters. What you don't have is the sort of, and I, I use hectoring cautiously because it can be a good thing as well, but you don't have this sort of hectoring single narrative voice that says, I am the narrator and this is my world mm. instead you've got this yeah this kind of and the, and the characters are uh, you know I like to put humor into my work although it, it, I have to say it does happen naturally but I don't I'm not reverent towards my characters yeah so I think sometimes people hear about this book and they think oh it's a very serious book about the tragedy of being a black British I woman I found it brilliantly irreverent so for example yeah. you've got the the Carol character who mm. is this uh, she, she works in the city and there's a kind of gently ribbing element of opening paragraphs about her that she's sort of part of this world and you know whether or not you like that world you can sort of see the flaws in it and then we're suddenly taken back to a very traumatic instant mm-hmm. when she's much younger and it's you know nothing as crude as is explained to you how she gets to this world but you 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 suddenly from going from this sort of slightly distant gently mocking device you're suddenly with her and empathising with her. And I think that works very well throughout the novel, yeah. the sort of the kind of the zoom in and zoom out. That's right. But also I'm quite critical 
Do you know what I mean? It's not, I'm, I don't write my characters uncritically. And also, we see each character through other people. So there's four mothers and daughters. So we see the mothers through the daughters and the daughters with mothers. And that's, that's quite fertile territory, I would say, for humour. Um, <laughs> yes. And also, pe- the characters are quite contradictory, or shall we say hypocritical in some ways. So you have Amma, the radical lesbian feminist who feels that she's very principled, but actually she was spotted in the Serial Lovers Cafe, which is a cafe selling 200 kinds of breakfast cereal by her daughter. So it's like, you know, characters cut through the BS in terms of the seeing... The daughter calls her a feminazi at one she point. She calls her a feminazi, you know. So that's, I really enjoy that because I think that makes, my, that makes them human because that's who we are. You know, I have been known to read Hello! magazine. People might think that I spend my evenings reading the TLS because I'm a professor. And writing for the TLS, know. we should say. Yes, and I do write for the TLS as well, but... You know, I love stylist styling Hollywood. It's great, you know. So we're, we're made up of many different. We have many different aspects to ourselves. Um, we talked. We talked a bit about hope and hopefulness of the novel. Um, to what extent is that a reaction for you about things that are going on now? And there's actually there was a TLS piece you wrote. You reviewed Renée Lodge's um, why, I'm, "Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race," and you say in that, "In Britain, we are taught not to see race." And I wondered whether you feel that's changing at all, or whether you feel actually we're, we're going backwards on that particular point. And then more generally, you know, <laughs> as I say, whether this, whether the hope in this novel is somehow a kind of way. I of think the hope against... is just me. It's just you. Well, I that's... hoped I'd win the Booker, and then I did. And he did. <laughs> I do think we, it, race is not part, generally speaking, unless something um, dramatic happens, usually traumatic. Race is not part of the national conversation in this country. When I go to America, it is part of the conversation. You know, I very rarely have discussions about race in the UK that are not generated by me. And you know? obviously you think it should be more part of the conversation. I think it should because yeah. it's something that we, you know, we're, we are living in a, a society where race is an issue. Um, and, you know, if you look about, look at the disproportionate number of young black men who are incarcerated yep. or who are, you know, sectioned under the Mental Health Act, if you look at employment, if you look at the fact that I'm one of 26 black women professors in this country out of 17,000 professors. Well, the two novels about black female British experience would ever publish this year. <laughs> Absolutely. So clearly there's a problem. But it's, it's always up to the people of colour to sort of generate the conversation and to try to try to sort of um, instigate change and, and, and so on. And I just don't think we've really found, as a nation, we've really found the way to tackle issues around race, but also other forms of inequality that helps people bring those ideas on board without becoming defensive or dismissive. Because still today, I know people who will talk about racist incidents or being the sort of, um, I don't want to use the word victim, but victim of kind of microaggressions and so on. And people say, oh, no, that, that doesn't, didn't happen. Nobody's racist, of course. Even the word racist is a difficult word because nobody is racist. Nobody wants to be seen as racist. I'd like men, no, how many men are sexist will, will admit that they're sexist? So these words kind of provoke a defensive mechanism that shuts down the doors. So how do we have this conversation? So you talk about unconscious bias. That's a kind of softer way of approaching the sort of different ways in which people treat people who are not like them differently. But then sometimes it's not unconscious, it is just bias. So it's a, it's a difficult subject. Well, hopefully this book, winning the, the Booker Prize, will in, in some way prove a bit of a corrective to that situation. Maybe. Maybe. Help it. Help it a bit. <laughs> help it a bit. Yes. And on that, I guess we should, we should end there. But thank you so much thank for coming to talk to me. Thank you very much.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Confidence starts with loving who you are. And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's bestsellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com, code GLOW.